Welcome to the We Raise the Stars and Stripes Over Japan podcast. My name is Mark Stephen Schwartz, and it is both an honor and a privilege for me to read the diaries of American and Allied civilian prisoners of war interned in and around Kobe, Japan during the Great Pacific War, World War II. This is episode number 11, starting with January 22nd, 1942. Charles F. Gregg. Well, today is the departing day for Kobe, and our farewell to the Marine and Naval officers and men. They think we may have a chance to get home much sooner than they. Although a cold day, things passed uneventfully. We packed our few belongings and left the mess gear, blankets, and slippers issued by the Army. Dinner was served at 4 o'clock, our last soup and rice meal for some time. There were many farewells to be made, and it was with a slight feeling of sorrow in leaving Morgan, Epley, Williams, Starr, and all the rest of the officers. We assembled at 4.45 and then waited out in the cold until about 5 when the Major General gave us a farewell address, turning us over to the Kobe police, a representative of whom also addressed us. Then just at dark, we were marched out in two blocks down the road to a small town where we were taken by train to the station at which we originally embarked and after waiting an hour, we were marched aboard a good-sized riverboat, the Kogain Maru. Again, we slept on the floor of a third-class oriental compartment, but since there was a carpet, it was not too cold. During the night, they passed out slips of paper with our names on them, and the letters M for the older men and S for the younger. Harold Brinkerhoff. We are supposed to leave for Kobe this morning. We have been ready for some time. Kobe is on the mainland. As usual, everything takes a long time. We had a 4 p.m. supper. Kobe police are here with us. Only the civilians are going. The military is staying behind. A police officer made a speech telling us conditions would be different in Kobe. We finally got started about 5 p.m. We were taken back to the docks in streetcars. We embarked on the Kogain Maru, an inland sea passenger ship. It was after dark when we went aboard. I don't know whether all their movements are after dark or if they don't want us to see anything. We were put below in heated rooms. We had to take off our shoes and place them in racks made for that purpose. I thought there would be a terrible mix-up if we had to get our shoes in a hurry. It is a pleasant boat ride. The inland sea is as smooth as glass. Max Bradovsky. We stayed at Zensushi a week. The food was rice barley, soup, and bread. We were now separated from the military prisoners, our status being established as military civilians. We were moved to Kobe. We rode all that night on the Kogain Maru and on a bitter cold morning saw Kobe, which was to be our home for the rest of the war. We were moved to various camps, 
and the monotony was always the same. Walter E. Buddy Durham. The civilians were separated from the military, and the civilians with five Navy nurses and one Navy wife, Mrs. Helmers, and her baby were taken into Kobe. At Zensushi Prison Camp, they put Mrs. Helmers in a hotel down in the town. She came up to see her husband there, and the Japanese around really took to her about the whole thing, all bundled up in Japanese warm clothing. They really loved her child. The Navy nurses were kept there. At first, they thought they were going to be uh, putting the Navy nurses with the rest of the military men, and boy, they raised Cain, and the Japanese couldn't understand because they always liked their women with them. Dean Brunton. We were growing weak from cold and hunger and had begun to wonder how long we would endure the conditions at Sensushi when on January 23rd, 1942, the civilians, including myself, were sent to Kobe on board the SS Kogain Maru. Bryant Sterling. On January 22nd, 1942, our gang of 129 civilians mustered outside, and a group of Kobe police took charge of us. We were divided into groups of 13 each and headed for the streetcars, retracing the same route we had come in by. After waiting at the station until 8 p.m., we boarded a comfortable inner island boat and head for our new home. Our bunch was led aboard to a main foyer and then to two passageways down below. Here we found a warm, comfortable stateroom in which we had to take off our shoes first before we could enter. There were a few benches to sit on and cushions to place the feet on. These later turned out to be pillows, as explained by the Japanese. Nothing was given to us to eat that night, but I had saved my morning's loaf of bread and a number two size can filled with rice for this occasion. Sure went good. The Japanese told us we would be there all night, so most of the boys lie down and go to sleep. About 5.30 a.m., breakfast is served aft, and it sure is enough, a Japanese meal. Rice, fish, chopped up vegetables, ginger, terrible tasting seaweed, and tea. We're given chopsticks, but the hell with that. I whip out my trusty spoon and set it in motion. That was the first time at a table since captured. The boat bumped off the Kobe dock at 6 o'clock a.m. January 23rd. Flashlight bulbs are again set off as we are photographed. After muster in a nearby waiting room, we're split into two gangs, young fellows in mine and those over 40 in another. Buses awaited the older fellows while we marched to the Siemens Institute located near the docks on Kobe. January 23rd, 1942. Charles F. Gregg. At 5 o'clock, we were awakened, washed, and given a real Japanese breakfast of seaweed soup, pickled seaweed, a salad of cabbage and fish oil dressing, brined radish and some vegetables, rice and tea. We docked at Kobe at 6 o'clock in the morning amidst a bombardment of flashlight explosions 
and marched in small groups of 15 each to the main terminal building. Here we were separated into the two main groups of S and M. I was in the S group, as were all the PAA Pan American Airways men except Hamilef and Berdowski. They marched us down the waterfront of a city not unlike Oakland, except there were few autos or streetcars. Very few. About three quarters of a mile from the pier, we rounded the corner and stopped before an old two-story green building bearing the sign Siemens Institute, our new home. They marched us in and asked us for the group leaders, and Carl West was pushed forward with myself. That started a number of days of hard work. The building was not prepared for us, and they had made no preparations for our coming. We counted the beds and found there were only 36, whereas there were 74 of us, plus Mrs. Helmers and the, her baby. We're able to get Mrs. Helmers and her baby taken to a, ho to a hotel, the Eastern Lodge, where they would at least have better heat and living accommodations. There were 14 rooms here at the Siemens Institute that we could use as bedrooms, the largest holding 25 men, the smallest two. More small groups than any other type. That day, we organized the men into groups of 10 each, assigned bedrooms, hunted up blankets, and issued what we found, which was merely three medium-short blankets and one light-short blanket per person. There were newspaper men all around, all day, interviewing us, taking pictures, etc. At 1 o'clock, a restaurant brought in food for us, and it was really good. American-type cooking of fair quantity. The same was true of the dinner at 6 p.m. Following days saw the quality continued, but the quantity slowly decreased until we were always hungry. Roy Hanning. On the Kogamaru, 7 p.m. to 6 a.m. Civilians divided into two groups, 74 men sent to the Siemens Institute. American meals three times daily, hot water baths, all facilities. No more soldiers or bayonets to look at now. Nice breakfast. Charles F. Gregg. They had divided our group into the men that were 35 years of age or older and those who were under 35. The older men, I don't know if they marched them or if they taken by truck to Butterfield and Swires, a private home. Butterfield and Suarez were a steamship company that ran coastal steamers from Japan through the various ports in Japan down to Singapore, one of the largest steamship companies in the Far East. Their manager had quite a nice home up in the hills of Kobe. It was about a mile and a half from Siemens Institute, but it was only a home and had a number of bedrooms, a large living room. I was only on the outside of it once. But uh, Max was there it had uh, there with uh, Al Hamilov. It had a kitchen. It also had heat. So the older men, this was winter when we arrived, remember, were given a little better accommodations from the standpoint of the bedding and the clothing made available to them. Because the Japanese honor the elderly 
and the younger people take what's left. So we, the younger people, were marched about two miles from the boat to the Siemens Mission, which was like St. Anthony's in Los Angeles, where the derelicts could stay overnight. The Siemens Institute is where the sailors could go who jumped ship. The Church of England took care of them there. It was a fairly large place, a big hall, and only a few bedrooms, but wasn't nearly as luxurious as Butterfield and Swire's. Max told me all about it. Roy Henning, it wasn't a residence like the Butterfield and Swires, as far as the Siemens Institute. Charles F. Gregg, you really couldn't call Butterfield and Swires luxurious, but Max and Al Hamleff, who was a port steward, because of their age, were the only two in Pan Am's group that were over 35. So they went up there. Roy and the rest of us went to the Siemens mission. Roy was with the Roy was with the Pacific Commercial Cable Company, not a part of Pan Am, but their location was contiguous with Pan Air, and since cable stations were on Midway Island and Pan Am had stations on Midway, there were ties between the companies. Cable fellows and Pan Am had a little more in common. Roy Henning and I had worked for Pan Am in 1937. Max Brodowski. We were brought to Kobe, having left the prison camp Thursday evening, January 22nd, arriving the morning of the 23rd. We were established in a large house in the foreign section. The location of this house is very pretty, the side of a hill which is wooded. Harold Brinkerhoff. We arrived at the dock in Kobe at 6 a.m. Flashbulbs were exploding on all sides. We were quite a novelty. We were divided into two groups. My groups are those under 40. The two wounded are with us. We're, we are 74 in number. Mrs. Helmers and her baby make 76. We marched about a half mile from the dock to our new home, the Siemens Institute. We were served a nice supper, a piece of fish, coleslaw, a small piece of meat, and a small sweet potato. We were issued a three-quarter mattress and four blankets. Some got cots. I slept with all my clothes on. It was cold. Don Wallace, Commercial Pacific Naval Air Base Contractors. We arrived in Kobe cold and hungry, and were divided into two groups. The beginning of a life of hell. Our food was quite improved over the food given us before, but it consisted of soup made with the entrails of animals, boiled sea slugs, and other items of food, which if one wasn't on the verge of starvation, would turn one's sub stomach. 24th, 1942. Charles F. Gregg. Up at 7 o'clock. Washed. Roll call 7.30. Exercise. 8 o'clock breakfast and another day organizing. At instruction of Japanese, we prepared a daily schedule. Cleanup groups, etc. Also tried to get contact with the Red Cross, Swiss, or American consuls and other groups of M 
were quartered at a large private residence up in the hills. Also endeavored to get more beds, blankets, medical treatment, a barber, clothing, laxatives, etc. needed badly by our men. None of these items was outright refused, but all were postponed for a day, which dragged on to another day, etc. No exercise period today as a football game was in progress. Normally, we are supposed to have a play period from 10 to 11 a.m. and 2 to 4. When we got to the Siemens Institute, most fellows were still wearing their tropical clothes. We only had the clothing which we were wearing since we couldn't bring anything with us. The police in charge of us didn't speak English. They had an interpreter. His name was Izumeda. He did the translation. Carl West and I became co-leaders of camp by elections. Our job was to talk to the police through Izumeda, what we wanted to do, and more importantly, what they wanted us to do, organize into work groups to clean the house and wash dishes and other functions. Very shortly after this, I gave Izumeda a Longines watch and asked him to try to contact the Swiss consul because I knew the Swiss were supposed to be neutral in the war. And I also asked him to contact some church organization. I asked about the Red Cross, but the Red Cross in Japan is under the royal family. Some of the priests from the Siemens Mission, the Church of England, were still free. Some organizations like this give clothing to poor. The first thing that came was a big box of clothing. We needed everything. Shirts, underwear, pants, coats, shoes, anything. They brought in a couple big boxes which was distributed on a need basis. Who could wear what? I was darn lucky I re had reasonably small feet. I got a pair of shoes because I only had tennis shoes. Roy Henning, I got a pair of shoes. They fell apart. They were so crisp. Charles Gregg, I let them know about the Butterfield house. I was told by Izumeda that they were sending clothing up there as well. The Swiss consul was trying to get information from his government. He didn't want to move in and let the Japanese know that he knew where we were until he had been officially notified. A month after we got the clothing, the Swiss consul, the first, the first gentleman was Harry Gucknett, a Nestle's chocolate heir. He was a pretty nice guy, sized up the situation. I asked him if he could get money or something to supplement our diets. He made arrangements through the Japanese so that the Swiss consul could advance us so much money a month for which we would sign promissory notes so we could buy supplemental things anything we could illegally or legally buy we were also charged for any dental work this small monthly allotment continued throughout the war the swiss consul got money to us sometimes not enough sometimes too long before times before we get anything Sometimes we actually arranged to have the Swiss consul buy things and then we could be able to buy them at a fixed price. 
At other times, it was left up to each individual man to use his own ingenuity how to spend his money. Some of us bought a couple of books. Harold Brinkerhoff. Our new home is quite nice, but very cold. There's a fireplace in the library. There's a nice selection of books. Gene would be happy as there were many National Geographics. Gene was Harold's son, oldest son. We were receiving three meals a day. Fish is sure every meal. Grated cabbage is another and a tangerine for dessert. We have cereal coffee for breakfast, tea for lunch, and a cup of soup for supper. All in bed by 9 p.m. It's too old, it's too cold to stay up anyway. I should add, those were the young guys. I'm sure it was a little warmer over at Butterfield and Squires where Max and Al Hamileff and the other old guys like Mr. Vaughn were. Okay, hold on. January 25th, 1942. Harold Brinkerhoff. Sunday, nothing much to do. In the afternoon, we were taken over to an athletic field to watch a soccer game between two Jap teams. At this point, I want to remind my audience, it's been a while, I think, since the pre-podcast, since I mentioned that I do not like that word. I hate saying that word. That was a term of the time. If I don't say something now, I'm going to say it again a few more times down the road. I won't keep saying it, but I hate that word, okay? And I'll tell you something. That word, as terrible as it was, the Japanese had words for us too, okay? So remember that. This was not going to Disneyland by any means. This wasn't, they were not in the money. Okay, let me continue. Charles F. Gregg. Organization and getting a smooth but non-military type working unit continues. Food holds up in quantity, although quality, or I'm sorry, food holds up in quality, although quantity is not so good. We're allowed to go to the park this afternoon and saw part of a rugby football game between two Japanese teams. Still working hardest on permission to send word home that we're alive and well, but no luck to date. Lots of fellows have colds and I'm catching a bad one due mainly to continually cold and damp feet. I'm still wearing the tennis shoes and they're really killing my feet. 1942, Harold Brinkerhoff, read and played cards to pass the time. We have a daily schedule now. 7 o'clock, Reveille. 7.30, roll call, exercise, and courtyard. 8 o'clock, breakfast. 10 o'clock, one hour in the park, Monday through Friday. 12 o'clock, lunch. Two to four, exercise in the park. Five o'clock, dinner. Eight o'clock, roll call. 9.30, lights out. Charles F. Gregg. Still spend a great deal of time each day representing the group and talking with the police through his Ameda. Customs inspected our baggage today and we had to declare our money once more. They're to exchange it for us 
at a rate of approximately 4.26 yen per dollar. Long interview today and questioning by the Chief of Customs and Officers. Bryant Sterling. Our new home was the best since the war started. Here we had plenty of rooms to move about in. Lots of magazines to read as well as innumerable books and also a photograph, photograph, I'm sorry, with a good set of records. The place was cold when we first arrived, but two fireplaces and a stove soon made things fairly comfortable. Two leaders were appointed. Carl West to handle the contractors, and Charles Gregg in charge of the Pan Air men, Bamboos, the locals from Guam, and the priests. We have about seven priests with us, and I found out a priest gets hungry as well as anyone, and certainly doesn't miss any passes at the food. <laughs> the gang of 74 is divided up into groups of 10 men. Bill Falvey heads up my group with Art and Don in it as well. That's Art Okapinti and Don Wallace. This was a great break for us because Bill got choice rooms. Bill Falvey. Don, Art, myself got to a private room with nice beds, mattresses, sheets, and plenty of blankets. Bill stayed in the room with the rest of the group leaders. Our washrooms are first class, honest to goodness, American style toilets. Tiled bathrooms and plenty of wash bowls with hot water. This means a great deal to us after having such primitive setups in the near past. Never forget one shave I had at the Army prison camp at Sensushi with the icy wind blowing through the, my whiskers while using ice water and laundry soap. One break I always had was my razor, forever a sharp blade. Many fellows made a resolution to get a Rolls razor when they got back to Frisco. Here at the Siemens Institute, I had my first bath since leaving the Matsons at Honolulu. That's the Matson Steamship Line. Five months back. Our food here is very good, but not too plentiful. After that first few days, they doubled our bread ration when we protested that we were still hungry after each meal. They asked us to write a paragraph telling what we thought of the Siemens Institute. After laying it on heavy in regards to our short rations, our serving of, soup, of bread doubled. They try as close as possible to give us American food. January 27th, 1942, Charles F. Gregg. Charles Gregg's entry covers the period of January 27th through January 30th, 1942. Daily routine now established and all going well. Have read Pearl Buck's The Strong of Heart continuing to serve as a leader for the group of 74 men. The exchange of dollars for yen is temporarily blocked by two men having more dollars than they are allowed to exchange. We are now receiving two slices of bread per meal and today had a variety in the menu by receiving a large dish of rice with curry. Still go to the park twice daily when weather permits and now have two footballs baseball gloves, etc. The men particularly enjoy the opportunity to go outside 
and see a little of the city and those that have Japanese money buy fruit and cigarettes. Mrs. Allen, the wife of the director of the Siemens Institute, he is interned as well, kindly gave us some clothes which we have distributed. Most of the men now have at least a change of clothes. Quality and fit as well as style or age means nothing in these times. There are still a great many colds among the men, but on the whole our collective health is very good considering the cold weather. The average temperature for this city during the winter is 37 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Guam was 82 degrees Fahrenheit. The doctor has come twice to look after the injured, but to date he has been too busy and had no medicine for the colds. Mr. Uzumeda and Mr. Mabuchi, two of the Japanese guards, have been exceptionally considerate of our welfare and are doing all within there and the police power and facilities to make us comfortable. We have not been able to see the Swiss Consul or the Red Crosses yet, but we have hopes. Harold Brinkerhoff. We have three nice tiled floored bathrooms with stool, ur urinals, and lavatories. Our exercise periods help pass the day. And that concludes episode 11 of the We Raise the Stars and Stripes Over Japan podcast. Thanks very much for listening.